0: The City's Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, retired Navy Captain Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. The weather has finally cooled down a little bit here. Yeah, it's and not, so not it's 100
1: degrees here in Annapolis today. It's and a million uh, yeah. degrees of humidity, or, right.
0: m- or a million percent humidity, so that's a good thing. That- and then uh, late last week, Paramount dropped the Latest trailer, I guess the only trailer to date of Top Gun 2. I got to say, I'm, and I was ready to be super cynical about it, but this this thing, this trailer is pretty moto. It looks like uh, maybe they're going to stick to reality and not go all Mission Impossible-esque with it.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, we've got a lot of great stories on that. So we've, uh, we're working on the September issue of Proceedings Already, which is always the uh, aviation-themed issue, and we're going to have a big package on Top Gun at 50th, 50th anniversary anniversary of Top Gun, Uh, and we've been planning on that for a while now, but uh, we've got five uh, former Top Gun instructors and current Top Gun instructors uh, who've written for that, so we're working that in in amazing pictures, Uh, and at the same time, this uh, trailer drops for Top Gun uh, 2 Maverick, uh, which will be out next summer, and uh really great piece uh, by USNI News Ben Warner today uh asking or answering the question that is on many people's minds particularly those who have served in the navy and remember that the first movie came out 33 years ago <laughs> so and so so yeah Pete Mitchell Maverick is now uh you know at least 37 38 39 years of uh, of active service uh, which is puts him way past uh, the, the amount of time that most captains would serve and so Ben sort of did the you know is that even possible to serve in the Navy that long and still be flying jets and so I I'd commend the us I, is no the answer is, we'll, yeah we'll, we'll suspend disbelief. the answer is yeah with with few exceptions is no uh, yeah. but we'll suspend disbelief because because it's Top Gun, it's he's top Maverick. Gun. It's you know yeah. Tom Cruise. Um, yeah. uh, so anyway, yeah, we're working on uh, the September issue, the August issue, of proceedings. The Coast Guard issued uh, focused issue just went to the press uh, a few days ago. Excited about that one. Uh, our naval history team is uh, is working right now to uh, get the next next issue of uh, naval history out uh, on Tuesday which is uh, which is great uh, people have been following the news um a couple different things in the Strait of Hormuz in the last week first of all uh a US Marine Corps team on board the USS Boxer uh, using electronic warfare methods, took down an Iranian drone. Although the Iranians uh, have denied that that happened, but uh, the U.S. as the uh, U.S. Navy and the President's cetera, have all said yes, the U.S. Uh, did. You know, for the price of a of a tank of gas. So you know, you get this little a generator up on the the bow of the boxer and this little man or not man portable but sort of uh, battlefield portable electronic warfare system that's made to uh, to take down or jam um, uh, drone signals uh, took out this um, uh, Iranian drone that was buzzing way too close to the boxer uh, in and around the the Strait of Hormuz and after being warned you know hey they splashed it so that's pretty cool Uh, technology you know just a couple years ago a lot of people were wondering it was in proceedings uh, how are we going to take care of these uh, drones? Because now everybody's got them. It's not just the US. If you went back 10 years ago, we were the only, co- you know, largely the only country that had this capability, which was uh, a revolution in military affairs. When you look at what we did with Predators and with. Uh, with other, you know, drone technology, and now everybody's got them. Everybody's copied that, including the Iranians, the bad guys, even even non-state actors have got them. So, uh, the Navy, Marine Corps, everyone's been wondering, okay, how do we take care of this? Well, you know, we've got some uh, some pretty cool tricks in our in our bag of tricks now, and uh, we just used one you know, a few days ago uh it, not in retaliation for that but in retaliation for the british royal navy uh seizing a, an iranian tanker with uh, oil headed to to syria last week or a couple weeks ago uh the iranians have seized a uh, a british owned tanker in the strait of hormuz just a couple days ago over i think it was friday uh so tensions were high over the weekend and uh you know a lot to land on the desk of the new Uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, just taken the reins in, in, uh, in London now, uh, so there's a lot going on in the world, for sure. And uh, we should mention that there are no British
0: nationals on that tanker that was seized. It is a British ship, but yep. there were no British nationals on the yep. crew.
1: Yep, and uh, our the chair of our board, uh, Admiral Stavridis, was on uh, the news yesterday. I think it was uh, talking, commenting on uh, that operation. And there was a British destroyer close by, Royal Navy destroyer close by, but not in a place where it could put itself. Between the threat axis of the Iranian small boats that came out and seized that tanker, uh, and the uh, and the tanker, so the tanker was very much in international waters uh, transit passage uh, when the Iranians seized it, and there was a British destroyer nearby, uh, but not close enough to uh, to intervene in time to, uh, to to save that that tanker from getting uh, seized. So it would be interesting to see how this, this plays out over you know the next days, hours, maybe you know weeks. Uh, So lots going on Um, in podcast news, uh, we've got today's podcast. I'll introduce the, the guest in a second. Uh, but coming up tomorrow, we have two. We have Admiral Stavridis in the afternoon, our the chair of our board, uh, who's getting ready to step down. This is his last uh, month as the chairman of the Naval Institute Board of Directors. He's been our chair for six years now, which is, uh, you know, thanks to his amazing service and uh, all that he's done for the Naval Institute. He will remain chair emeritus uh, for, uh, you know, as long as he wants to. And then we've got Admiral Ted Carter, Vice Admiral Ted Carter, the outgoing superintendent of the Naval Academy is going to be w- with us uh, tomorrow morning so admiral carter's uh, getting ready to retire and move on and uh, we're excited to uh, have him on the show and talk about things that are happening at the naval academy and uh, wh- you know his amazing career uh, class of 81 so he's getting ready to graduate after almost 40 years of service and uh, yeah, so he'll he, just two two distinguished guests on the podcast uh, tomorrow, and both will be in the studio. Both which is in studio cool. with us. Yeah. Also,
0: cool. it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. That's right. So we have something coming up tomorrow on that.
1: Yeah. So in the July issue of uh, of Proceedings and online, uh, have to, the uh, there is a an amazing piece uh, that talks about lessons learned from Apollo 11 and uh, it was written by a navy pilot who flew uh one of the missions off the uh aircraft carrier that was out there in the mid pacific uh for the recovery mission hornet the hornet and uh so larry zetterberg uh and his wife uh carol uh wrote this piece together uh, amazing story. Uh, we, we were ch- chatting about this with this morning with our midshipman summer interns. Um, so uh, this Larry's job was largely to uh, be a calm relay for this whole mission. Uh, Hornet had to, um, uh, you know, sort of scramble overnight to move uh, when the splashdown location changed at the last minute. And so they launched his aircraft and, you know, big sky, little airplane theory uh, almost didn't work out as the as the Apollo capsule came zorching through the atmosphere and came very close to his aircraft uh, as it came in for a splashdown, That's nuts. Uh, yeah, which is nuts, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a really great story, uh, personal, you know, history, naval history, history being made. Uh, and he offers some uh, some insights into all the things that went on uh from the navy's perspective and a personal perspective out there you know uh in nineteen sixty nine in the in the pacific for that recovery part of the apollo eleven mission so uh, yeah, so much was,
0: stuff to remember you know through that i mean I watched it, and as i 'm sure anybody who is my age or older saw it on t v live um Uh, You know, as a little kid in Norfolk, Virginia. My dad was in the Marine Corps, and so he was an aviator. So it was, you know, certainly something that our family paid a lot of attention to. Um, If you think about how big the Saturn V was compared to the space shuttle, you know, just raw power. And, you know, even just watching the the documentary footage on TV, you just get chills thinking about that thing just launching and and seeing that. I've seen some launches. My parents live on the space coast now and will occasionally get to see. Um, you know, like a SpaceX rocket go up and, and that sort of thing. And that's kind of cool. But just imagine the raw power of of a Saturn V, you know, and, and, and just the mechanics and the technology circus at 1969. And as people say many times, you have more computing power in your iPhone than they had available in the uh, command module of the uh, Apollo spacecraft. So just, you know, you talk about American ingenuity and, and and all of the stuff that happened during that time. It just – if you think about it 50 years later, it's just really, really amazing.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
0: No doubt. So we'll also introduce uh, – we have a couple of our interns in the studio with us. So I think we've mentioned before on the podcast that we run a summer internship program. The summer is going by super fast. We're already into our final block. Yep.
1: Week um, th- uh, or block three. Third block. Just and, joined and, and us yesterday. So uh,
0: we have Ben. Ben, turn the camera around and show the people um, – so there's Ben,
1: Midshipman Second Class Ben Brown,
0: and we have Cameron here uh, working the gains on the uh, on, on the laptop here, uh, checking your comments. Midshipman Third
1: Class Cameron Guan. So Cameron, yep. go
0: ahead and so, say hello to the people. Hi, everyone. Hey. So what's going on? Where, where, what did you do last block? Last block I was a, a surface cruise in San Diego. Okay. I was on the LSD fifty two, the USS Pearl Harbor. It okay. was really a really good experience. Right. Very cool. So you're you're a youngster, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. So for everybody out there, that means he's a, a, now a sophomore, just finished your plebe year, and now you're a badass youngster, right? right. Ready to, to <laughs> It's, a, it's raise the best hell. year. It is. Well, <laughs> in some ways, it's not. Um, because you think all of your problems were about being a plebe, and then you realize there's some things associated with being a midshipman. So all good, but at least you don't have to do all that bleep stuff this year. That's true. So we're super happy to have these guys uh, as interns. This is the third block just started. So they'll be running our Instagram page. They'll be writing content on our blogs, both the Naval History blog and USNI blog, and also working on long-form projects with an eye on getting them published in proceedings and or Naval History. So welcome, guys. Thanks yeah. for helping us out with the production of the podcast here
1: great stuff all right so let's go to our guest now so on the line from austin texas is wendy anderson and uh, on the line from marblehead or marblehead massachusetts (laughs) is uh, august cole they co-wrote an article that we published online in june and it is also going to be in the uh, august print magazine uh it is called the secretary of hyper war op tempo at machine speed so uh wendy august thanks for coming on the podcast
2: Hey, you bet, Bill and Ward. Um, thank you for having
1: us. So let's start Appreciate with Wendy. Yeah, hey, Wendy, real quick. Uh, so we've had August Cole on the podcast uh, maybe a year ago after he wrote a piece of short fiction for us. Wendy, this is your first time on the podcast. For our listeners, tell them a little bit about your background and what you what your current job is. And, and you had some high-profile jobs uh, in the Pentagon that, that uh, helped – Uh, with writing this and giving some perspective on on this particular article.
2: Bill, happy to do it. Uh, And listen, thanks again, gentlemen, for for the invitation, and and also more than anything for um, your openness and willingness and really curiosity and and commitment um, to what August and I are trying to do with this thought piece kind of part fiction, part analysis in terms of imagining what a defense secretary's job might look like in coming years. Um, I'll say a, a little bit about myself, appreciate the opportunity. Uh, long history, really 17, 18 years now in national security affairs, um, started off Uh, in Washington, um, right out of grad school, so I'm simpatico with the interns who are doing much cooler things in their lives than I was at their ages. Um, Good job, guys. Uh, Ended up coming down to Washington, was in the United States Senate for six and a half years, And, and I'll tell you, Bill and Ward, it was a fascinating time to enter there as a younger person doing defense and foreign policy work because it was right at the time when the 9-11 Commission report was being reported out in hearings. And I'll come back to that uh, when we you know, engage in the conversation a little bit later. Um, joined the Obama administration uh, in uh, 2010 and served out nearly five years in the Department of Defense, directly supporting former Defense Secretary Ash Carter as his chief of staff for four of those years and then moving on to Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel's number two on the civilian side. So an incredible uh, privilege uh, to serve with those two defense secretaries and also to have the opportunity uh, to more indirectly support a third, uh, Secretary Leon Panetta, uh, when he was there as well. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you.
1: Very cool. For our listeners who haven't read it yet, uh, so it starts off with this um, sort of futuristic scenario, late 2020s, the U.S. is in war with China, uh, and it, there's a, a, a mobile convoy, a, a command and control convoy that the Secretary of Defense is in, riding in this convoy uh, on a way to a, uh, a secret location, uh, up in Pennsylvania, on the move constantly, uh, we've got some very cool art that was done, original art for this piece done by Al Brady, who's uh, uh, um, illustrated some of our other f- short fiction pieces, including uh, August Cole's piece last uh, last year. Uh, and so, uh, the, you know, the, it starts off, they don't know I'm listening, but I catch their hushed conversations, consonants clipped and vowels drawn taut by fatigue. Quote, she needs to sleep, another hour at least. Sir, SecDef's profile indicates otherwise. She has a go-no-go decision to make with JSOC. She can sleep when she's... Don't say it. You're getting punchy. I just go by the data. So that's the lead into this. Um, the duty physician is monitoring the Secretary of Defense in this high op tempo. She hasn't slept. Uh, so go go from there a little bit. August because you wrote the nonfiction part, and then Wendy, you did the analysis that's embedded sort of halfway through the article. Just talk a little bit about the scenario and what you think uh, ten years down the road. A Secretary of Defense in a in a you know. Uh, peer-adversary war is going to have, what that op-tempo is going to be like.
3: Sure. And Bill and Ward, thank you again for uh, publishing this this work. You know, this hybridization of fiction uh, and analysis is, I think, hopefully an effective way to, to really get people engaged in talking about this in a way that they might not otherwise have they just consumed a regular uh, type of white paper. And so, you know, this piece opens up in the middle of the Poconos on board this bus, this nicknamed Moby, uh, as the, the Secretary of Defense is, is being rushed you know, to the next secure site so she can prosecute the American war in the Pacific. And we're 18 days in at this point, which really is beyond the bounds of what you know, most ordinary people can handle in terms of extended sleep deprivation and, and information overload. But that's actually going to be, I think, fairly typical of the kinds of human performance demands we're going to see in a great power conflict, particularly with China uh, like like the story has envisioned so this the Secretary of Defense you know by looking at the, the the operational environment and command environment from the civilian sense through her eyes I think allows us to really unpack what will be different from today about how a major operation uh, potentially involving allies is, is prosecuted and, and more importantly what are the things we should be paying attention to now starting to uh, change or at least put a lot of energy into thinking through about how we might improve. You know, the, the, the details in a story like this are necessarily vague in allowing the reader to fill in some of the gaps. But I think when you start looking at the lessons learned that you can draw out of it, many of them jump right to the fore, you know, such as information overload is, is a real risk, especially if you see that uh, developing a sort of gap or a delta between different pockets of civilian leadership, say from the White House to the SECDEF. Um, You know, the electronic warfare and cyber threat is going to be so acute that fixed bases and facilities in the U.S. and, of course, abroad, may literally be unsuitable to to running uh, uh, an extended military campaign, therefore finding ad hoc or mobile sites. So so the tactical challenge, if you will, that like a ground unit would have in the Pacific or in Europe in such a contingency may not be dissimilar to what our civilian leaders are going to face as well. Um, you know, and the step back kind of perspective and, and the story opens, of course, you know, really, really acutely hammering this point about the, the physical and cognitive load but we talk often about the super soldier in the era of conflict that uh, Amir Hussein, Wendy, uh, and, and I have been writing about is hyper war. Uh, but we also are going to need uh, super civilians, if you will. You know, cognitively enhanced. People who are able to manage that side of the the government's efforts in, in t- terms of conflict, not just sending forth uh, people to to the to the front lines who are who are modified or, or augmented or uh, enabled, if you will, through AI and, and, and other systems.
0: So, Wendy, what's the difference between war and hyper war?
2: You know, we've we've, as August said, General John Allen, our former COM ISAF, and obviously a. Uh, uh, someone that you all are very familiar with who's held multiple leadership roles, both in the military and on the civilian side, um, and Amir Hussein, um, one of our thought partners, CEO of a leading artificial intelligence company, uh, Spark Cognition, uh, that I'm now working for and leading its defense business. And August and I have been thinking about uh, those differences, and really trying to figure out uh, what the characteristics of hyper war would mean. You know, essentially, it's 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 speed and and um, speed and speed and speed and speed. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things August write, and I write about is that you know future conflicts are obviously certain to be overwhelmed um, by AI technologies and what we refer to as robotic autonomous systems that revolutionized warfare, why? Because it's at speeds that human cognition can't keep up with. Um, Some would say that in some versions of conventional warfare, obviously the same is true. But when you have these kinds of technologies that I'm now engaged um, in trying to operationalize with the Department of Defense, you're not just talking about speed of relevance, you're literally talking about different kinds of technologies um, that that is moving at a speed that, that the human brain is simply not able to process at. Um, so when John Allen and Amir Hussein wrote for uh, you all, um, I think it was in, in early 2018 on hyperwar, we've done a lot of thinking about what has to happen to uh, a human who is at the center of a lot of hugely important strategic and also operational decision sets, particularly in wartime, i.e., a Secretary of Defense who arguably has an incomprehensibly um, challenging job, and how do we think about how that person would deal with, manage, address, process, and then act on uh, using what we would hope would be good, sound judgment um, in ways, obviously, that advance our national security, keep American service members alive, uh, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I got a question for you, Wendy. So you worked for Secretary Hagel and Secretary Carter. Uh, so the, the the nation was at war at the time that you served under those two gentlemen for five years in the Pentagon, right? It was not a peer level war. It was not what we might call hyper war. But there was uh, active, uh, you know, conflicts going on both in Iraq and and against ISIS, and then uh, ongoing in Afghanistan for now eighteen years. Uh, so you saw the type of schedule that they keep day in day out. What's it like? I mean, on, on you know, in this environment currently, not ten years from now against China, but in this environment, sure. are they working twenty-two hours a day, or is it phone calls middle of the night? Is it you know um, nuclear alert drills? Like, what's it like to be Secretary of Defense? You know, the, the the cognitive requirements seven days a week that that they face all the time.
2: Mm-hmm. It, it's an excellent question. Um, I've, I've never been exposed to a more intense uh, op-tempo uh, or set of complexities in my life, and I wasn't at the center of those decision sets, uh, but I was certainly supporting the one who was and also responsible in some large uh, way for making decisions about what information would get to him and through whom, right? So you realize, wow, you know, chief of staff, and I love, by the way, being staff. Um, I'm like Jeremy Bash and others who've supported Leon Panetta. I think the staff role is a hugely central, pivotal figure, again, for that reason of making those decisions all throughout the day about what the secretary, him or herself, will be able to look at. To answer your specific question, it's 24-7 for however long you have the job. Um, that may seem obvious to, to some folks, but when I say 24-7, it's 24-7. Defense secretaries are set up, once they leave the building, the Pentagon, uh, to operate um, uh, with total uh, accessibility by his or her staff, by you know, the national security executive team, by the president. He is set up with uh, classified infrastructure uh, in his home. There is a 24-7 security detail from the time that he is sworn in until the time that that he uh, leaves the Pentagon um, of folks who uh, have direct contact uh, with, you know, decision makers all throughout government to wake the secretary up if he needs uh, to get on the phone at 2 a.m. or to make some sort of operational decision, uh, whether it's in concert with the president or not. I mean, this is Again, in terms of the positions that I have held in my career, uh, one of the most tense, stressful, demanding, onerous, um, important, uh, position that requires something that humans just can't do 24-7, which is, you know, clear and, and consistent sort of sound judgment. Um, it's a very, very hard thing to manage. We, we physically are not set up for this. Um, but obviously, it's the weight uh, of you know not only the several million service members uh, who are prepositioned and out there in harm's way, but it's also trying to figure out how do you how do you advance the security uh, mission in all aspects, and it's 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 a it's a a, a very stressful thing that that again you, you manage throughout the day and you try to keep your head a little bit above water so that you've got the strategic piece in mind while operating at the tactical level and trying not to be overwhelmed by, you know, what's cliche referred to as the tyranny of the inbox, that daily set, that daily deluge, if you will, um, of sort of, you know, real-time crises that can often take one's full attention away from the larger, perhaps more important strategic uh, policies or operations that also need to be thought of.
0: August, the last podcast when we were talking about your previous work of fiction uh, that was exclusive to proceedings, we were marveling at at the way you come at the uh, the problem, if you will. Um, and I think during that conversation, we were talking about when you commented that maybe the most charismatic person in the unit might be the robot. Um, which again, that's just that's a that's the way August's mind works, which is fantastic. In this in this item with the short fictional vignettes that you do, you you address this the mashup between this this um, and and we talk about not not terabytes but zettabytes you know uh, in terms of the amount of data that's being processed, um, and and that comes smashing headlong into the the flesh and blood piece. Um, so how how are we gonna? What's your? I, I, estimation of how we would deal with this. Cause like Wendy just said, you know, with any of the sec defs that she's served on the staff, you know, these guys are on 24 seven, Roger that, but the profusion of data we're talking about in this piece is beyond anything that we've ever dealt with, you know? And so yes, at some point they have to go to sleep, you know, um, same thing we've dealt with, with COs at sea at some point, you know, regardless of the op tempo, the human being needs to go to sleep for some amount of time. So uh, how how are we going to, you know, what you tee up here that's different than what Wendy was talking about is they're wearing biometrics devices and there are physicians um, you can imagine the watch bill to watch the gauges of monitoring the sectf's you know physical state, including nutrition, you know oxygen, blood levels, all kinds of stuff, um, cholesterol. You can just imagine, you know, how this is working. Um, so it starts to get into privacy concerns, maybe. But how is this going to go down? How is this going to work?
3: You know, I'm a, a huge cycling fan. Like right now, the Tour de France is going on, and and in many of these future oriented. Uh, thought experiments, I often come back to the way that professional cycling has uh, scientifically changed everything from recovery to pushing the limits of, of human performance, it often often against you know in contravention of the the rules and and, and laws of, of the countries in which many of these racers compete. Uh, nonetheless, that is an expression, I think, of the boundaries uh, of, of scientific possibility that I see being applied. Of course, not just in the athletic domain, but but into uh, the the conflicts of the future. And so for the Secretary of Defense, you're really faced with two problems. One is how do you understand what's going on at any given time? And of course, whether that's actually an accurate representation or not. And the second is you know, how do you ensure that your physical body is able to keep up with a drawn-out conflict? because despite what a lot of people I think would hope, uh, I don't foresee a conflict with China being a short, sharp, conflict, and that and inter uh, poses a new kind of context of sort of management endurance and the ability to be strategic, not just in acute moments, but over time. And of course, we've seen the sorts of decision aids that are emerging today through machine learning systems, uh, you know, simulation, all of that will be, of course, part of the uh, repertoire of, of a, of a sec def. But ultimately, if we are going to have a human very much in the command loop uh, at that national authority level, we are going to have to address some of these these really basic fundamentals. So would it be that you have um, bio pumps that help monitor and adjust stress hormone levels, uh, blood sugar, that sort of thing? That does seem entirely science fiction and almost black mirror, but but it may actually be the place where we end up going if we are in these sorts of uh, contingencies. Having a medical officer being able to check the kinds of uh, baseline or markers for senior leaders also seems to be acutely important, particularly because as individuals, we're going to have to make decisions much faster. So the paradox being, of course, the mountain of data just grows, and yet the time with which we have to process it shrinks. And we will certainly be relying on AI uh, and staff as well, uh, who are themselves working with, or may be, uh, algorithms uh, to to do that but ultimately though we are you know in a, in a in a Western society that values the role of a human decision maker in these really kind of existential type type decisions or no go go or no go decisions when it comes to uh, to, to operational planning so I, w- I would see again both the scientific uh, sort of France like approach to human performance uh, on one hand and then the cognitive enhancement through AI and machine learning systems on the other that allow, the, the the senior leader to to make better decisions with greater fidelity the, the last thing I'll, I'll say about that though is that it seems we're also at on the cusp of a breakthrough in coming up with alternatives and how we interpret and receive information one of the concepts i've been playing with for a few years and the, the stories i've been writing they've been about haptics how do we experience information not just see it or hear it what is that um, say that, um, that again the, haptics haptics, correct. So are there ways that we can tap into the body's neurological systems to appreciate a change in our environment? For example, imagine an aviator who's wearing a suit that tickles or pinches them in a different part of their body, depending upon what the aircraft is experiencing in terms of load or damage or a threat would be an obvious one. I'd never leave the cockpit. uh, (laughs) So so this is the kind of thing that we're going to start to see because we simply cannot if we're going to rely on our visual, uh, you know, neurological systems, process enough information, and and there are certain ways we need to focus on information in uh, an asynchronous way, so that not everything is important all the time, and these sorts of uh, load balancing or shifting between the 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 haptic again, the kind of physical touch, et cetera, the neurological. Uh, and the traditional senses of auditory or or visual or whatever. You know, again, this is where my mind takes me, but I see that, you know, moving again out of the fighter cockpit, but into like the E-ring at the Pentagon.
0: Once again, August's (laughs) mind blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, well, haptics is my new favorite word.
1: So, uh, August, your your previous piece for us was called "Automated Valor." We published that in May of 2018, and, and our listeners can find it on our website as well. In that one, the the scenario was 20 30 years in the in the future, and it was a very tactical uh, scenario. Uh, and you wrote that for the uh, British Army, and it was about. Uh, a, a, uh, operation, um, sort of this tactical vehicle crew. And, and as Ward said, you know perhaps the most uh, uh, the smartest and most interesting member of the crew is a, an automated intelligence. Um, I, I from what you just mentioned there I was uh, reminded that uh, I've been told that the f-35 helmet mounted sight in the uh uh in the the jSF allows a pilot to look down and look through the aircraft as if it was invisible right so as as a pilot's looking around the uh, what you know the the aircraft itself does not impair his vision or her vision you know 360 uh, completely spherically around the around the aircraft um, well on that
0: topic because I think we had this conversation last last podcast with August, which is, the again, the profusion of data in the visor, never mind a heads-up display. Now everything's in your visor, right? So that could, at, you know, on paper, like, this is amazing. And, and as the engineers are designing this, you know, we'll give you this, this, and this. But that's could be, like, Overwhelming. You know, cognitive it, yeah. saturation, yeah. Right? right? Right. So it's almost like when you select different things, you got to filter things out. So I don't know if this August comes down to, again, when we're talking about the future sec Will somebody tailor an algorithm based on his or her um, execution, you know, uh, tendencies? Or is it it something he or she can do for themselves? Because at the end of all of this, you know, zettabytes, there's a decision that has to be made in a timely fashion. And again, if we think about, Wendy, when you watched the SECDEF make the call, um, you know, it came down to a single decision based on however much data. Um, and, you know, obviously there were decisions upon decisions, but what was the information that mattered and, and how quickly did they have to act? Right. Cause I've hung out in the chaos in Kabul and and you know, Bagram yeah. and, and down in Kandahar. And, you know, it's like this mission control. You guys have seen those things too. And you only know, have the SIG SIG yeah. acts happening all over the country. And, and, and uh, you know, is it up to general in our case, it was general Rodriguez. Is he making a decision on where to employ troops? Or does he just have general awareness? Right. So what, what are the actual decisions that the SecDef has to make? And I'm, I've thrown a bunch of questions out at once. So if, August over, uh, over no, listen, or tonight. when do you go ahead?
2: Yeah, if, if you don't mind, I, I'll I'll just pop in here for a, a couple of uh, couple of thoughts, and 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 let me back up just a little bit, um, Bill and Ward, because I think there's there's one thing uh, that motivated me uh, to start thinking uh, about this. Um, you know, I was thinking recently about the the 9/11 Commission Report. I mentioned that in my intro. That's you know the first year, 2004 that I uh, joined the United States Senate and sort of officially, I guess you could call it now, my career in, in national security policy. And I remember diving into that 600-paid um, document, document or report, Nerd That I Am. But to me, you know, I'll tell you, out of, out of all of the interesting analysis um, that was documented there and really the dozens and dozens and dozens of, of failures that that commission reflected on and narrated so significantly, um, that report said, uh, full on, the most important failure was, quote, want of imagination, close quote. And there was some other line somewhere in that paragraph, I couldn't find it this morning, and it says, we do not believe leaders understood the gravity of the threat, And I was thinking about that. That's why working with someone and thinking with someone like August is so significant. What I find is that you've got some of the smartest, most capable and competent folks working in government doing amazing things on behalf of the American people that I feel often Americans don't even know is happening, right, on their behalf. What is often lost simply in the crush of important decisions and, you know, a ton of data that cannot be processed is the imaginative process, is taking a minute or whatever period of time to reflect on what are we missing, what's not being seen here, what are the other things that we need to be thinking about, right, as we respond breathlessly to the magnitude of the daily crush of real-time crises. So, I was thinking about that a lot in the times that I was supporting these defense secretaries, you know, tired and exhausted at the end of a day, which never really ends, right? Um, And I was thinking about that report. And so I started thinking, what would the secretary, for example, Mark Esper was just confirmed two hours ago as our new defense secretary. This would be an interesting thing for him to take on, to consider um, as Defense Secretary Esper how would I, if I assumed the, the qualities and characteristics of a hyper-war environment, how would I ensure that the Department of Defense is optimally organized for the speed, the flexibility, and the agility demanded of the speed at which technology moves? Would I have to reorganize the OSD, the Office of the Secretary of Defense? Would I need to reorganize the joint staff? If so, how? What I need to think about, and I think he would, uh reorganizing the, the war fighting geographic uh and functional commands, right? Even if you just look today in 2019, our department, um, as powerful and mighty as it still is, is largely organized for a post Cold War environment. It is not optimized or organised to meet a new security uh, uh matrix or a new set of threats. And I'll just say two other quick points and, and I'm interested in August's thoughts on this as well. If I were Mark Esper, how would I ensure that the National Security Command and Control can operate at again at the speed of hyperwar? Um, how would I ensure redundant, survivable, secure communications networks? And by the way, get this from the orbital constellation to terrestrial means to global fiber. So in other words, nodes in the C2 network that would be highly decentralized, connected primarily via data, with some limited use of voice, because as I'm sure the two of you know, um, it slows down the speed of the decision actual action continuum when you use voice. I mean, this is why this article is so, in my mind, compelling. Um, not because we're the you know sources of it, uh, but because of the imaginative exercise that will allow us hopefully to avoid you know, failures in the future. Uh, and the whole point, right, of imagining creatively is to be able to prepare and, and, and to develop uh, a set of plans for different contingencies. It's actually one of the things that our military does exceedingly well, but it's not doing it in my view in these ways um, with as much effectiveness and efficiency as I think it could be, which is why again, these thought pieces, I think, are so provocative. Um, I'll, I'll end there. I've got a lot of other things I could add into that, but that's the kind of thing, Ward, that I would want you know our Secretary of Defense to be thinking about with his colleagues, uh, with the president. I, I know it's a big, big thought, but I have to, I, we have to think this big in order then to back up into um, the various more tangible ways of trying to. Uh, think about what a reorganization or what a communications network it manifestly would look like.
0: August, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean the 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 really I think critical changes
3: that you're going to see will involve, as has been said, speed and also uh, context, and and by context I mean the political considerations that go with uh, taking. Uh, military as powerful and capable as ours to war, but also understanding how the sorts of decisions and the timelines that they're made upon will affect public engagement in that. And and we've seen that's an attack surface now. Uh, I think the last election proved that with the actions of the Russians. Any sort of great power conflict in the future will will, will reflect that as well. That there's a small thread in the story, essentially, about this Secretary of Defense needing to make a decisive decision uh, decision on an operation in the Pacific and, and almost essentially not being able to wait for the president. And, and the president is overwhelmed with data and has a different approach to understanding what's going on that's, of course, informed by perhaps a different set of constituents. But nonetheless, it exposes a sort of gap that if I were an adversary, I would sure exploit. And so that's another thing we have to be ready for when we consider this is that, you know, while this story presents the POV from the Secretary of Defense's point of view, it would be equally fascinating to look at this story from, say, the Chinese point of view and what is their intent and, and effect that they're hoping to achieve on our political and command and control structure, because we have uh, incredible capability, but only if we have the sorts of national will, if we have the uh, coalition's across sectors. You know, this is something I think that Wendy and I tried to tease out, for example, between technology companies and the department. Uh, These are the kinds of elements of success that will have to be established in peacetime. Because when you start looking at areas of reform, like we raised organizational structure, operational tempo, communications, force management, any one of these is large enough to consume a leader's scheduled for months, if not years. And yet they may all have to happen simultaneously. And, and my hope in writing this kind of ficent, this sort of fictional intelligence that we can use to help better prepare is that we can start to at least make some headway or have conversations that, that can give us a bit of a head start in trying to reconcile what is the right step. And importantly, if the adversary wants to achieve a certain effect, how do we deny them that capability?
1: Yeah, August. You you put a term to it at Wendy. You teased it out a little bit, but uh, August last year at uh, an event here at the Naval Academy, I heard you use this term FICINT, or fictional intelligence. Uh, so I was an intelligence officer in the Navy, and and my ilk are very uh, accustomed to human intelligence, human or signals intelligence, sigint. Uh, but you used you've coined this term FICINT, and and Wendy, you brought it up that it's important to get out of the day to day. You know, crush of responsibilities that at almost every level of the military we have, including uh, certainly at the SecDef level, and and imagine what could happen. You know, this lack of imagination that you pointed out was brought up in the in the nine eleven report. You know, the the inability to think. Geez, what what could our adversaries do? Even even non state actors. You know, with a, with a couple of airplanes or with a couple of uh, uh, you know box cutters smuggled onto an airplane. Uh, so it, it's just a great point, and, and uh, August. I, you know, you, your your first piece that I think many of our listeners and our readers are very uh, familiar with is the piece, the the, the book that you wrote in twenty fifteen, Ghost Fleet with PJ Singer. Uh, and I've got to ask this on behalf of our listeners who are all wondering when is the sequel coming out?
3: You know, I mean, in many ways, the, the you know the Ficket <laughs> movement is is bigger, of course, than than like just Ghost Fleet. Uh, so I would say that a story like this. Uh, the others that, that you've published, uh, both by me, but other other writers at Proceedings and in, uh, in the, the, the military-oriented future fiction we see, in many cases, is, is part of that, that, that sequel, if you will. Uh, that said, Pete and I are literally finishing another book right now uh, this week and uh stay tuned for may of 2020 um uh, we're keeping it under wraps until then a uh, different universe than go sleep but hopefully it'll be just as disruptive and and raising some some big questions about assumptions we have about the future and technology
1: fantastic all right we look forward to that just as we look forward to uh Top Gun 2 coming out in 2020. So uh, for all our listeners, we've been talking to Wendy Anderson and August Cole. Wendy's the general manager of defense and national security at Spark Cognition. And August Cole is a noted author and uh, works on creative foresight at, at Spark Cognition. And it's been great to have him on the show. Thank you both for your time and for writing uh, this piece and for sharing it with proceedings. And we look forward to having you on the show and having you in the magazine in the future.
2: Terrific. Very much appreciate it. Thank you.
1: All right. Stay tuned. And uh, for our listeners, again, we'll have uh, two more shows coming up tomorrow. A busy week, and we may have a third one on, uh, on Thursday this week. And, uh, you know, stay tuned. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.
0: The Persini's podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com.